newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project gives you an opportunity to hear a half hour of commentary and analysis every week of the recent issues in the news media, and we are thanking you for coming along with us. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, here with Dr. Alan Shartok, Barbara Lombardo, and Judy Patrick this week. Dr. Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, Barbara Lombardo, a longtime editor of the Saratogian, executive editor of the Troy Record, and Judy Patrick, the longtime editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, now vice president of the New York Press Association. There, I've identified us all and we're ready to talk about, oh, a couple of issues we'll get to this week, whether we ought to feel sorry for Fox News. Yes, we'll ask that question. And what to do about folks seemingly growing weary of coverage of the coronavirus. We'll get to those things soon enough. Dr. Shartok, are you feeling sympathy for Fox News at all these days? No, I don't feel sympathy for them. They're getting what they deserve now. When they start to act a little bit more responsibly, everybody turns around and says, see now, Fox is telling the president off in a couple of cases, but look at all the damage that has been done, including the election of this president. Yeah. Well, the the reason that we're saying this is that Fox News, of course, for years has been guilty of, let's call it, polarizing coverage. It's had this really grossly biased conservative report by intent. You know, Fox News was founded to be a conservative outlet, intentionally distorting the news, and they have all these hosts on at night. And nowadays, after the election, suddenly there's competition, and the the president is pushing, you know, not only have they had Breitbart and so on, but now they've got Newsmax, and they've got OANNN, and while these are still tiny by comparison, Fox News is feeling the pressure. Barbara, are you, uh, you're not feeling sympathy for Fox News either? I wouldn't say sympathy for Fox News. What I'm feeling is concern for this huge portion of the country where people aren't hearing exactly what they want to hear and that they are willing to turn to even more crazy sources for information or disinformation. That worries me. Yeah. It's also alarming, don't you think, at how quickly they turned their allegiance away from Fox News just because President Trump told them to? I mean, I thought that was incredible. You go to outtakes from rallies and they're shouting, you know, we hate Fox now. You know, the broader point here is that there does need to be a rational outlet for conservative opinions. And Fox certainly took that way too far, but we need that. We need a great range of voices. And there are valid conservative opinions, smart, patriotic, but man, Fox didn't take it there. Maybe they'll take it back, but no, I'm among the camps. I don't know anybody who's feeling sorry for Fox, maybe except the Murdochs. The ironic thing is that Fox News, of course, has led the fight to make people leery of what they watch on television, has always said you can't trust the media. And now so suddenly people are saying, well, I can't trust Fox News. So they're uh, hoisted on their own petard, right? A couple of things here. One, we do know that there's some real division within the Murdoch family. 
you know, there are two princes, and the princes are not in agreement. And that is one of the reasons, I suspect, that the old man, otherwise known as Old Man Murdoch, who is like the rest of us facing his maker, sooner or later, has to take a clean look at what have I done. You remember at the end of the bridge of the River Quad, <laughs> Alec Guinness says, what have I done? He takes a look at having built this bridge so it's going to help the Japanese. The Americans and the British are trying to blow it up, and they blow it up, and he's being defensive about it. And he says, what have I done? Maybe Murdoch's going through a moment like that. It could be. It could just be that, you know, the the network has always tried to maintain sort of a a semblance of having a serious news operation, even though it has all of these hosts – like Hannity and and Tucker Carlson, the guy with a bow tie, I can never remember. Anyway, those people don't even purport to be factual, but Fox has always had a news operation that had some real reporters, distorted coverage by what they choose to cover and what they don't. But there has been some real news breaking there. But now they have their news operation saying, yes, there's a president-elect in Joe Biden, while the entertainment hosts are still saying, no, there's still hope here. So the farther right, the people on Newsmax and OANN are saying, no, no, the the president could still win. Oh, boy. (laughs) And that ain't all. That ain't all. You also got this attempt not only to play the news side a little bit more fairly, but then they go and they get themselves a couple of, quote, liberals, Juan Williams and some of the others, who are supposed to legitimize the operation but are hopeless in their attempt to do that. But it really had to hurt. There has been a couple of nights so far that CNN has outperformed Fox News in primetime, and Fox News has really reigned supreme for a long, long time in that spot. And you have to imagine that the people at Fox are seriously rethinking what they're doing. Although, I mean, to be honest, Tucker Carlson has not changed his tune hardly at all. There's been a famous case, a legal defense by Fox, When Carlson was sued, basically they said, nobody believes this is really news. Well, the bottom line is a lot of people really do believe what Tucker Carlson says. You know, it's difficult to figure out what to do because if you cover what the right-wing media is doing or if you cover what the president is saying, you're covering lies. Daniel Dale on CNN, he's the guy who's in charge of the fact-checking unit at CNN, he says, quote, almost nothing Trump is saying about the election is true. And so you find that a lot of the mainstream media are, in fact, just not covering what used to be considered newsworthy. When the president would say something explosive, there just isn't coverage of it anymore because he will tweet 60 times a day. And you don't read about that now, do you? I think, I think that's appropriate, isn't it? The two things that I would want to emphasize that Judy said, one is that the Trump followers are going to follow whatever quote-unquote news the president is telling them to follow, and that is horrifying. And the other thing to remember is that CNN has been doing better than Fox News, so that there maybe is, on the one hand, I'm scared that the Trump people are not following real news at all. On the other hand, I am trying to be optimistic that they are going to be listening to CNN providing credible news. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe we're moving into an era with the normalization of politics somewhat, let's say, as Joe Biden assumes the presidency, maybe we will see a bit of a return to reality-based journalism and the part of an audience that has abandoned it for so long. CNN, for its part, is doing a very interesting thing. They're doing constant pops, we call it in the business, proof of performance pop. And they're on all the time saying, we were there, and they're capitalizing, as you suggest, Rex, 
on the fact that they're doing better and say it's the number one, it's the number one, it's the number one, and they're saying it over and over again. Tell people that enough, they'll believe it. Yeah, I think we need to really watch the net audience of all the broadcast stations because I am concerned that people are just moving elsewhere. They're going to this new parlor platform or they're going, you know, the Internet offers so many different places for them to get their news. And this stuff is not news at all. It is incredibly horrible, racist homophobic. So I want to make sure that, you know, mainstream media or big broadcast stations like networks like Fox and CNN and CBS don't lose their audience to these, you know, these fringe news sources that are incredibly um, scary. Well, what Judy's referring to there is, do you say parlor or parlay? It's the, the French <laughs> word anyway for to speak. <laughs> uh, Trump supporters call it parlor. Oh, do they? Okay, great. <laughs> I heard somebody call it parlay the other day, and I thought, have I been saying this wrong? My you know, high school French teacher would be upset. But Parlor was founded in 2018 by this woman named Rebecca Mercer. She's the daughter of Robert Mercer, the multi-gazillionaire hedge fund manager who created Cambridge Analytica, and they've been big supporters of President Trump and a lot of conservative causes. So she created this to be what she calls an unbiased social media place, meaning something where you can uh, you won't be at all limited by the a little bit of limits that have now been imposed over the last 2 years by Facebook and Twitter and Parler became the most downloaded free app in the Apple App Store the weekend after the election the day that major media outlets called the election for Joe Biden suddenly Parler Parler took off so that's the thing. Is this going to become now where conservative voices are heard as other social media platforms are beginning to say, we need to be careful that we're not pushing lies out to millions and millions of people? The problem with parlor or parlay, because I also yeah. just barely passed high school French, but I remember parlay is to speak, that it is a free-for-all so that it is supposedly for all voices so that it could be a place for conservative voices, but it is all the, you know, the Holocaust deniers, the anti-Semites, the Proud Boys, that they are using that and they're allowed to use it. So that is troubling. And anecdotally, I know uh, local you know, area Trump supporters who were on social media who have now said, oh, I'm not going to bother with talking to you on Facebook, not me, but talking to this other person on Facebook anymore. I'm switching to Parler. Yeah. What would you do? You know, we've still got a First Amendment. Is there any way not to allow them to? Yeah, it's true. We have a First Amendment. And in fact, I've, I kept on repeating that to myself when I was passing by a pro-Trump protest recently where they were screaming at me. I just kept on saying to myself, we have freedom of speech in this country. We have freedom of speech in this country. I think this parlor is a potential disaster. I have the same experience as Barbara because all of my right-wing friends have disappeared from Facebook. At least I used to be able to engage them in conversation and show them that things they were saying were incorrect. Now they're gone, and so there's no hope of even reaching them. But we have freedom of speech in this country, so we need people to step forward and, and come up with ways of engaging people in a way that they can disseminate the truth, to disseminate good civic engagement, disseminate news literacy. I think it's a potential crisis. Hmm. So where do you think the media can play a role, the mainstream truthful media can play a role in, in turning this around? It's clearly, you know, all the evidence has shown that trying to point out where people are mistaken on Facebook, or whatever, trying to engage one-on-one, -on -one, even that does not seem to work. 
I think, though, people do trust their local news source, from their local radio station to their local newspaper to their local TV station. And I think that's a good place to start, to have local neighborhood conversations. Because even though we're one great big nation with hundreds of millions of people, I think if you start locally and you just start to kind of build that trust at the local level, build it, build it. It's harder to do in a big city, I understand, but that's one way at least you can start to chip away at the problem. Our problem is that there are so few people who like both sides of the story. So the irony here is that as long as Fox was one side of the story and not both sides, they were more popular. And so now you've got Madame Beerbaum, my French teacher is probably listening. You've got Parler or Parley, and they are one side of the story, and they're attracting a lot of people. Don't confuse me with that other side. I doubt if your French teacher is listening, Alan. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with all due respect. Well, with all due respect, if you don't remember their name, what's the matter with you? <laughs> there we go. Good old Madame. But the fact is that we all get criticism from even our local community, though. We have a couple of people, several people, who write to us at the Times Union all the time denouncing us for coverage that is factual because it conflicts with what they've read on these outrageous sites. They somehow have come to believe the untruthful stuff that is just put out there on social media or on Fox and assume that we're lying to them. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't know how you rebuild credibility if you are challenging the sort of underlying biases of your readers, except you just keep trying, keep doing what you can. Well, this is not a challenge we're going to solve here, but we do have another one, as though there's not enough bothering us. The most significant story of our time, of course, is the coronavirus. The difficulty we are now confronting is that as the novelty of the virus has worn off with, say, six or seven months since our lives were upended, the news articles about the pandemic are getting less attention. In fact, if you judge by the numbers, interactions on social media, that is likes, comments, and shares, the numbers are lower than they have been at any time since early March, which is pre-quarantine. So the fact is people are stopping giving attention to this virus, even as it's entering the most dangerous phase. What is the answer to that? What are we supposed to do? Just not publish stories about this? You know, I think early on, there was a lot of attention because we didn't know about it. And there was a learning curve. And so now a lot of people do know, you know, they've learned about it. They're interested in finding out what's new. But I think those first few months, everybody wanted to know about it. How does it work? Who gets affected? And there was a lot of uncertainty. But of course, there is some fatigue, but there are a million, I mean, there are a thousand ways to cover this story in a more interesting way. I think uh, we've uh, we've all gotten a little lazy in terms of just, you know, covering the same things again and again. Journalists are very creative. They've got to find, get the people stories done. That's an interesting idea. Stories about real people going through it. Is that a plan? I would agree that the real life stories, stories about people that people can relate to are the kind of stories that will attract people's attention. But I think at the same time, even if people are choosing to read less, that we have a responsibility to not publish less. When toll is counted later of how did the media cover this, you don't want to have blank days where we didn't cover things. Mm. Maybe there has to be a discussion within some newsrooms and news outlets about every incremental step of certain things or how much do you play up things that are undecided and are not going to be resolved yet. But I think we do have to publish that news, even if people aren't 
all looking for it right now. I want to know what it means to me nationally and what things mean to me regionally and locally. I turn to the Times Union's reports for that very closely to see what does it mean to me and to the New York Times to see what does it mean to me as a citizen of this country. So don't do less. Just wait it out. Alan? Yeah, thanks for calling on me, Rex. Appreciate that. The... um... Yeah, of course I do. I haven't right. called on anybody. I've just been letting people talk. You're just well, a shrieking uh, violet, you know? Yeah, right. But I do know this, and that is we are confused as a country. Individuals are. We want what we want. We want to have the old way back. And on some level, we know that we can't have it. And this is causing us to look to the media and other people in different ways than we did before. We are quite angry that we can't have Thanksgiving, for example, even though we know full well that the calls for wearing masks and not having Thanksgiving are real. And that, as always, is manifested in what we think about our press coverage. Thank you for your opportunity, Rex. Appreciate it. <laughs> you know, you, you have something there. Or as one of my elderly friends used to say, there's something to what you say. <laughs> no, but listen to this, this notion of longing for something that has passed. I mean, you even see that in Barack Obama. Now, his book is instantly the best-selling memoir ever published. But one of the interesting things about this first volume of his memoir, A Promised Land, is its media critique. And he seems to have nostalgia. One of the things he's talking about is is one of the things that we've discussed on this show, which is the notion of a common narrative. And he is saying that his presidency was made more difficult by the fact that we no longer have Walter Cronkite telling us what's going on that the standards within the industry, he says, have changed. So he's urging supply-side fixes, a combination of regulation and standards within industries to get us back to the point, he, he says, where we at least recognize a common set of facts before we start arguing about what we should do about those facts. I'm not Who'll quite sure it? what kind of regulation we're right. talking about. Who's going to be the umpire, right? I mean, somebody's going to have to call balls and strikes here. That was a lie that you just told, you know, or that was the truth. Rex, we were talking before you arrived today about Andrew Cuomo, who lost his temper <laughs> with the press yes. corps. I interviewed him for another another half an hour, but he let them have it, and they got even with him. You know, in the papers this morning, they're using adjectives, contentious, and this and that. And one wonders whether there's ever an equal ability to critique the press that the press has with the governor or president. I think the press was asking him to be factual and to answer questions, and he refused to do so, and he got upset when they asked him the same question again. The question was, are the schools going to be open? And he refused to answer the question and then got mad at reporters for asking him questions. I don't think there was fault on the part of the media. I think there was fault on the part of the governor refusing to answer questions in a press conference. So that's kind of uh, unusual. There you go again, Rex. You're one of them. So the fact of the matter is you're sticking up for them. And you're one of him? Uh, they, <laughs> no, I'm not one of him. Uh, but I did get an answer to that very question you raised when I interviewed him a little later for half an hour. And there's a way of doing it without ticking him off. So 
He was pretty angry, I can tell you that much. I enjoyed it myself. Well, well we've talked about Cuomo for a little bit. I didn't, didn't want the Obama book to pass without mentioning. Sure. I think we all will recognize the fact that his presidency wasn't the most transparent presidency in the world. In fact, Margaret Sullivan of the Washington Post called it transparency light. Uh, if you remember, he clamped down. He was trying to find out who was leaking information to the press. He was threatening reporters with jail. With every new administration, you hope there's going to be increased transparency, and it never happens. And so even though Obama's talking about the importance of the press now, let's not forget that he was not great with the press. He did not give intensive interviews with hard-hitting journalists. He used social media very well. It's easy for him to look back now with rose-colored glasses, but let's not give him that one just yet. That's well, true, Judy, but he did not call the press the enemy of the American people. The bar has lowered, that's for sure. <laughs> One really has to worry about whether the American people have the respect that most of you think that they're owed, right? In other words, do people like the press? Do they like the people in the press? Do they think when they're watching a press conference and somebody is too tough on a president or a governor, they say, well, I'm on the side of the reporters, or do they say, well, why is that guy uh, being so obnoxious? That's hardly our role, though. You know, our job is not to be popular. Our job is to tell the truth. And when you have politicians who lie, politicians who distort, who refuse to speak or answer questions, who purport to be doing one thing and, in fact, do others, of course we're going to call them on it. That's our job. And if it makes us a little unpopular, that's unfortunately we have to deal with that in some other way. Let the marketing department work on that. That's not our job. The job of the journalist well, come is to on. do the truth-telling. Come on, I'm not I'm it's not true. arguing. Well, everything you say is true, Rex. That we know. Yeah. Nevertheless, <laughs> no, thank you. Boys, boys, nevertheless, you know, there is something to be said for the relationship and what people feel because if people don't think there's credibility on the part of the person asking the question, they are less likely to believe what they're reading or hearing. I don't know. Our, you know, our job used to be to be invisible, that people didn't know who these reporters were. Do you, if you remember back in that day, I think the availability of to see a press conference in action or on social media has increased the presence of reporters. We encourage them to establish a personality like we never did before. Although, if you go way back in time, you remember Sam Donaldson always to get in trouble for being too assertive with the presidents he covered. When I watch a press conference where there's too much give and take with the reporters, I want that to stop. I just want the basic information that I was looking for, and I don't want to hear the drama between the politician and the reporter or the news crew. That but sounds the reasonable. Have, are in a tough position. They have to be really careful to tread carefully on the line between being assertive and being acerbic. We're saying, hey, you're not telling me the truth. You're not telling me the full answer. But that politician's answer is their answer. And you could try to get more out of it. But that is the answer. It might be an unsatisfactory answer. And that's what you have to report. Did I just hear two votes on my side? I doubt oh, it. Uh, I, uh, I don't speak I for part of your side. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt I it. Know. I don't I mean, know. I want to recount. I want to recount. <laughs> if, you, if you want, it must have been rigged. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think, Alan, you have something there, but I, I don't think that the example of Andrew Cuomo is the best that you could cite because he flipped out at his press conference at a very thoughtful and kind reporter, Jimmy Vilkind of the Wall Street Journal. And, we don't uh, have to agree on that. For no good reason. We don't have to agree Sorry. on that, do you? I mean, you characterize Vilkind one way. Somebody else may characterize him a different way. So you don't get to open your mouth and have the truth come out of it. You know, this is your view. I feel like sometimes reporters are asking to get their little tidbit of a quote or their soundbite and trying to 
corner the politician into saying a little something that's going to become a headline or a soundbite, and that bothers the heck out of me. I think there's something to that. I think you're exactly right that there are times this used to bother me in press conferences at the Capitol where uh, I'd be listening to the governor's response to a question and the guy next to me would be getting his question ready, formulating something that he knew would just snag the guy. And I actually wanted to know what the politician was saying. And I, I do think there's an increasing amount of showmanship now in the media. I just don't think that we were witness to that in the case of Andrew Cuomo being contentious, unnecessarily so. But, you know, we tend to be unforgiving of politicians and historical figures as well. And we perhaps ought to recognize if they would have a little humility and admit, gosh, I'm sorry, I was a little bit grouchy there, or I lost my temper, or I didn't tell you the truth at that point. Maybe we would all be better served if there was just a little accuracy instead of the constant puffing up of themselves that politicians see and the failure to acknowledge that they might actually make mistakes. Or vice versa. Yes. I or, agree with uh, you, Alan. <laughs> thank you. Me too. <laughs> no, do not. Take it back. <laughs> Uh, well, in any case, we live in a warped information climate, and this is what Barack Obama is saying, and I think it's what is, is clear from uh, the discussion we've had about the emergence of the new right-wing media. It is a proliferation and splintering of the media in the Internet age that has really helped to entrench partisanship, and we are all reacting to that and unfortunately having to live in that realm. So we're out of time for this week's no. Media Project. Yeah, it's so sad. Can we rename the show from the Media Project to the Three Against One show? <laughs> Nonsense. <laughs> you scored some points today. We were nice to you. That's Alan Shartuck, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, here with Judy Patrick and Barbara Lombardo, and I'm Rex Smith. We are grateful to our producer, David Gustina, for putting up with us all these years, and to you for allowing us to join you this week on the Media Project. Newspapermen meet such interesting people. It must have startled poor old Sadie's uncle. Ting a ling a ling, city desk. Hold the press, hold the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ting a ling, ting a ling, ling a ling a ling. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, professor emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now publishers of such interesting people Their policy is an acrobatic thing They claim to represent the common people It's funny Wall Street never has complained Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go To working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough Now publishers are such interesting people It could be prostitution, I don't know Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling Advertising, get those readers, get that payoff What a headache, what a mess 
Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give three cheers for freedom of the press. 